Well, today our topic of discussion for Sunday School is going to be the doctrine of work. The doctrine of work. Uh, We're going to be looking at the doctrine of work today because I feel that this really um, is an overlooked doctrine that is that is actually more important to us than we first uh, might consider. Every one of us has an occupation or a work to do, uh, and, and most of our our tasks uh, in our occupations and what we do for work varies based on our our life circumstances. But but whether male or female, um, adult or child, um, we all have a work uh, that we are to do. None of us are allowed to wake up each day and just simply uh, remain idle throughout the entire day. We all have a work to do. And for for some of us, for most of us, I would say, um, if your work uh, and your occupation uh, requires the punch of a time card, uh, for many of us, we are at work uh, for 8 to uh, sometimes 12 hours a day, which means that a third of our day, or even more than a third of our day, even a half of our day sometimes can be spent at work. So this is important because we don't want to be spending a third of our day and a half of our day uh, doing something, being busy about uh, this thing we call work without having a proper biblical theological understanding of what it is we are doing with our hands, what it is we are doing with our time. Uh, That's why this is so significant, because we spend so much of our lives working that we want to have a a correct and and biblical understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think that the answer to the question that I have is obvious, is our work life to be separate and distinct from our Christian lives? The answer there is obviously not. Our work lives are to be Christian and part of our Christian lives. There's, I think, uh, quite naturally, uh, this barrier that we have set up between uh, the sacred and the secular in regards to our occupations. And uh, today, hopefully, we're going to break down some of that barrier and break down some of that wall that's set up in our minds, that wall that separates the the sacred from the secular uh, when it comes to our to our work. And uh, why would I use a designation for the title of this study today? Why would I call it something like the doctrine of work? Why the doctrine of work? Why would I say something like the theology of work? Well, because there is a theology to the idea of work. And so I'm just going to go through very quickly through some of the the, the various disciplines of theology, the very uh, various disciplines of Bible study. We have been, uh, for a while now, going through systematic theology. Systematic theology is a, a discipline of studying theology whereby uh, we look at what the entire Bible has to say on, a, on any given subject or topic. So, systematic theology picks a topic, 
and tries to bring together everything the Bible has to say on that particular topic or subject. That's systematic theology. That's what we've been doing through as we go through uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book together in Sunday school. There's also another discipline of Bible study called biblical theology. Biblical theology is not just simply a theology that um, aligns with the Bible's teaching. Biblical theology is actually um, a, a proper title given to how one approaches the study of the Bible, uh, and you're looking at the Bible and trying to see how it develops uh, the progression uh, that that is put forth in the Bible's teaching. The, the progressive revelation of the Bible is what biblical theologians are, are studying and looking at. Um, Gerhardus Voss, uh, the father of modern-day biblical theology, uh, gave a, a summary uh, definition of biblical theology. He said it's the history of, spe- of special revelation. That's biblical theology, seeing how all the parts of the Bible fit together and, uh, and give us this progressive revelation leading to Christ. Um, there's also historical theology, a different type of approach to uh, looking at the theology of the Bible, where in, histo- in historical theology, we're looking at the development of the church's understanding of systematic theology. So those different topics and subjects that are looked at in systematic theology, well, in historic in historical theology, uh, we look at how the church over time throughout church history has has come to understand and has battled through and and reasoned through some of the different topics of systematic theology. And finally, there's one more um, one more classification of of theology. And that would be practical theology. Practical theology is really uh, the application of, of theological truth to all of life. It, it's, it's, it's basically the working out of one's systematic and biblical and historical theology. It's how you live out these truths and put them uh, to work in your life. And so the reason I go through those is because as we talk about the doctrine of work, uh, the doctrine of work and what we're going to be looking at today would definitely fall under the classification of being a study uh, under the rubric of practical theology. Uh, We're going to see how uh, a systematic uh, theology doctrine is worked out. I think uh, as we see and as we apply uh, the doctrine of God even, a doc, the doctrine of God, which is a, a chapter and a heading that you would find in a systematic theology book, well, we're going to see how the doctrine of God actually applies to us and how the doctrine of God and who God is actually affects us. And so to see how that has worked out and to see how we can develop and begin to think about a theology of work, um, please turn in your Bibles to actually the very first page of your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, uh, even verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We're there, you probably know, it says, In the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so as we turn to Genesis 1.1, what is the very first thing that we learn in the scriptures about God? What is the very first thing that we see here? Well, that is that, that God, that he is creating, that our God, if, if you are to open the Bible to start to study the doctrine of God and find out who God is, the first thing you learn about him is that he is in the beginning creating He's there working. He's there producing. That's, a, that's an aspect of, of who our God is. He's a creating, working, producing being. And uh, God's work actually did not cease um, completely in all aspects in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, the Bible also tells us that God continues to work. God continues to work in John chapter 5 verse 16, Jesus says this um, in his discussion amongst the Jews. In verse 16 it says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. In verse 17 it says, But he answered them. Jesus answered them and said, My father is working unto now, and I myself am working. And so, Jesus, along with the Father, is working. Uh, this is a part of uh, God's nature. He's a working being. And so how does, as I said, we were going to see how practical theology is an application of, of systematic theology in this instance. How does the reality of God being a working being uh, affect us? How does that apply to us? Well, if you're still in Genesis chapter 1, um, turn over to the next page, probably, and look at Genesis one twenty-seven. Genesis one twenty-seven. it says, There that God created man in his image, in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And so this uh, doctrine of God, studying who God is, affects us because we were created in the image of God. And therefore, we too are to be creative, productive, working beings, just as God is. Just as God is. And so, in this sense, we could therefore place uh, work um, as a communicable attribute of God. It's a communicable attribute of God in that uh, it's an attribute of God that He shares with his creatures. God works, and the creatures, us, made in his image, are to work as well. I think the, the natural tendency is for us not to appreciate or even recognize uh, this correspondence that we have with the nature of God. Uh, most of us don't view our work rightly. So let's, but let's take notice here um, it's important to see the context in which God has given man work. I think this will be helpful in, in a lot of the misconceptions that we have about work in our minds. Note the context there, why we're in Genesis. Now look at Genesis 2, chapter 15. Look at the context in which God has given man work. Genesis 2, 15 says, Then the Lord God took the man 
and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now the word cultivate in Genesis chapter 2.15, this, this work and this task that God gave to Adam, to man in the garden, to cultivate the ground is is nonetheless uh, to be taken as a, a a task and a calling to physically toil in the garden, to cultivate it. Um, so we see, therefore, that that when God created man and created the garden, He put man in the garden to do what? To work, to cultivate His garden for Him. Um, and God has given this work to mankind in the garden in, in Genesis um, chapter 2, which is important to understand and to note because uh, this work that God has given to Adam uh, was in chapter 2, which precedes chapter 3. And that's what's significant is because in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of man into sin. The fall of man into sin. And that's important because work was given to man prior to the fall. Prior to the fall. I think um, we have the natural tendency to see our work in in total as being um, part of the curse. As in, work in general is is a curse to mankind. We may, we may think that perfection of being or or, or, or the state of leisure um, is a state of perfection. Uh, but that's simply not true because God who is perfect works and we were given the task to work in Genesis chapter 2 before f- the fall, before sin, before the, conf- before the curse of sin even took place. No, work was there in the beginning when God said that everything was good. And therefore, work and our work is to be good. Um, the word, or or even the concept of work, is not a bad word in the Bible. Um, there's only a couple of times that the word work and the concept of work is used in a in a negative with negative connotation in the Bible, and that would be if. Uh, if the word work is being used in the context of, of somebody trying to work for their salvation, to work um, in order to gain justification before God, the Bible certainly um, looks down upon work uh, for that reason. If you were to work for your salvation, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, probably the most famous passage that clarifies that, Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So there, um, it is a negative thing to do. It is a negative thing to work for your salvation, because um, we are saved by the grace of God. Um, Also, the Bible looks down upon work, and, and, and views work in a negative light, if that's where you're trying to find your fulfillment in life through what you through what you do with your hands and, and, and through your work and what you can gain by your work and, and the money you collect and the things you collect from your work. Um, Solomon learned this lesson 
in uh, Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 4, listen to how Solomon describes this um, vain attempt at finding fulfillment through his work. It says this in Ecclesiastes 2, 4. Solomon said, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And then in verse 18 he says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. You see, Solomon had learned and pondered the reality that uh, no matter what you gain in this life, uh, as far as material possessions and what you're able to to heap up in your storehouses as a result of your work, um, is not going with you. It'll be left to who knows who. Um, and so there, in that sense, to work um, just to, to stack up possessions is, is vanity. It's vanity. So, uh, again, originally in the garden, work was good. And work was pleasurable. Work was given in Genesis chapter 2 uh, before the fall. Work is something that God does and therefore is, uh, by necessity, a good thing. So then why don't we enjoy our work? If God works and therefore it's good, if, if, if we were given work be, in Genesis chapter 2, why don't we enjoy our work? Well, although work was given to us before the fall in that Edenic state, nonetheless, the fall of mankind that took place in Genesis chapter 3, this fall of mankind into sin did in fact take place, and the repercussions were great. Let me just read an excerpt from Genesis chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 17. It says there, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree, about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground. So the man, the man Adam, who was, who was given this role to work the ground, to provide the sustenance for he and his wife, God cursed that ground that he was to work making his toil more laborious and making it difficult. And so, as a result of this, in what God did as in response to our sin, uh, the fall is now really a twofold problem for us. Um, it affects us in, in several ways. It affects God's original intended purpose for our work. First, this ground that was once a pleasure for us to keep and for us to cultivate is now cursed and and bears thorns and and, and thistles and and difficulties. 
um, our work is not is not easy and pleasurable and and does not um, easily respond to our work. There's now difficulties with it. And second of all, uh, the fall, and as a result of it, um, we as creatures are now fallen and sinful people. Um, and so all of these difficulties in our work, all of these thorns and thistles, all of these obstacles, um, because we are now fallen and sinful, cause us um, to complain. And they tempt us to grumble and to find excuse not to work and to not to be as appreciative and thankful as we should be for this gift of work. The fall has affected us in these ways. It's important to remember that that although work is now harder to us because of, of our sin in Adam, um, the difficulties now are a result of our sin in Adam, and the difficulties are just. Uh, this curse on our work is just, and it was right that God did this. And so, because of that, we don't have any excuse uh, not to serve and to glorify God rightly in our work, even though it is now difficult. Um, and that's because the difficulty is a result of our sin. We're responsible for that. And so we don't have uh, the excuse not to glorify God in our work. Now, there's um, several passages uh, also, besides just Genesis 3, that speak to um, just how uh, the fall has affected our work and how that works out um, in our lives. Um, the, the Bible gives us many examples of these negative realities that are now associated with our work and how fallen and sinful man now struggle um, to glorify God in our work. Um, some of the most notable passages of this uh, struggle and of this temptation to sin in our work. Some of these examples are found in the Proverbs. In the Proverbs, in uh, the, the English word most often um, noted in these passages describing uh, the folly of man at work is that word, the sluggard. The sluggard. We see that, that word being used in Proverbs chapter 6. For instance, Proverbs chapter 6, uh, verses 6 through 11 say this. It says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer, and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed Man, so here as as this this one being described as the sluggard, we see um, the tendency in the sin of man to be lazy, to be lazy, to to not want to uh, get up and to go to work, to love the uh, to love one's sleep, and to not be willing to go out and to and to work as God intended. Another example of this in the Proverbs is found in Proverbs chapter 26, 
uh, verses 13 and 14, again, in verse 13, the sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. And so, again, here we see the the Proverbs giving um, almost a, a mocking example of a, of a sluggard in his bed um, who is finding any excuse not to work. The sluggards... Uh, giving here the excuse that there, that there might be a lion in the road, and therefore he, he might as well just stay in bed. Uh, the, the, the seriousness of the problem of sin is not just an Old Covenant issue. Um, it's not just an Old Testament problem, but uh, the serious problem of, of laziness and idleness is also found in, in a New Testament church in Thessalonica. Uh, in Thessalonica, we see the problem of idleness uh, becoming a very serious problem there, a very serious problem indeed. Um, the, these these uh, these men here in Thessalonica, um, some think were were possibly finding theological excuses not to work. Uh, they were they were as as you read First Thessalonians, they were expecting the return of Christ. And many wonder uh, if that is is the reason why they they aren't uh, busy about work, and why Paul here has to um, harshly uh, reprimand them for their laziness. Uh, maybe they had were, were trying to use a theological excuse not to work. But as we see here in in Second Thessalonians chapter three, there's not even a theological excuse not to work. That that won't cut it either. Um, let me just read through uh, this section. The Apostle Paul devotes um, a, a large section of Second Thessalonians chapter 3 to addressing the issue of laziness in the church of Thessalonica. It was a very um, serious problem here. Um, so let's just read through this text to see how Paul addresses uh, the issue of, of idleness in this church. Second Thessalonians Chapter 3, verse 6 says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Um, So that's just the introductory verse there to this problem, but we already see here that this is a, a very serious issue in this church and, uh, and we also know from 1 Thessalonians that, that this is now the third time that the Apostle Paul has had to warn this church of this problem of idleness. If you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, just real quick, keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians 3. But in, th- in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, it's interesting to note what Paul had already told this church in his previous letter. He said, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and to work with your hands just as we commanded you. What's important about that is that um, Paul is now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, commanding them again to work with their hands. But he also added the little footnote there. He said, just as we commanded you, meaning... Uh, 
Paul had already given previous instruction to this church to be working with their hands. When Paul established this church in Thessalonica, when he planted this church, he was giving that tradition, that teaching that the Christian man is to work. And so uh, he planted the church and gave them that instruction. And then he later wrote 1 Thessalonians to them, again having to tell them to work with their hands. And now in 2 Thessalonians, Paul's second letter, for a third time, Paul is having to uh, command this church um, to be busy about their work. And so let's, let's continue reading in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 to see where this goes. Now in verse 7, Paul says, For you yourselves know how, how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Wow, a very strong rebuke in verse 10 from the Apostle Paul. If anyone is not willing to work, he says, then he is not to eat either. And so the Apostle Paul has, has, has done everything he can to minister to this church. He's given them the instruction. He's left for them an example where he worked with his own hands day and night so as to not be a burden on them. Um, a, a right that the Apostle Paul um, did not, a, a, a task I mean, that the Apostle Paul did, a a willingness to work, although he did he didn't need to, um, he very well could have could have um, required this church to support him in his gospel ministry, uh, but he for 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 get, or forwent that right so that he could um, serve as an example for this church, and now he's having to give them this very very harsh rebuke, but he goes on now in verse eleven he says. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion, eating their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so as, as we've seen here, the problem of, of idleness in this church at Thessalonica uh, had, had, had come uh, to a hilt here, and the Apostle Paul is having to um, deal very seriously with this issue to the point that the Apostle Paul is now calling uh, for a form of church discipline here in verse 14. A disassociation with those who will not uh, be about their work, who are being lazy, who are most likely um, living off of the church and off of the brethren and not working for themselves. So uh, that just being idleness and laziness just 
as well being a result of the fall that occurred and and idleness and laziness being um, a a result of our sin. Uh, Another problem that also came with the fall is the problem of death. And with death comes widows. Widows who also need to be taken care of through our work. And so here we see... um, the reality of death now affecting our work and, and requiring us to work um, for a very good reason, to take care of widows. Um, we find this being addressed in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, verses 3 through 8, where the, here the Apostle Paul um, again gives much um, ink to the reality and the necessity of 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 taking care of widows and, by extension, the work that would need to be done by those who um, would be taking care of these widows. Um, Let's just read through this section together, just expose ourselves to this issue and what's going on here. 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, it says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. And so, even just here before we begin, that, The whole context is going to denote honoring widows as in taking care of widows, as in um, supplying for their needs. Uh, Financial help is what's being talked about here. So verse 3 says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in treaties uh, and in prayers day and night. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So again, very strong, very strong language and tone from the Apostle Paul um, here addressing those who are not willing to work to take care of their family members who who need their help. Um, And so just from this, I just saw the reality that not only are we to work, and not only are we to have the motivation to work to take care of ourselves, but another motivation for our work is, is that we also have the responsibility to take care of our family members and also our extended family members, our parents um, who might uh, become widowed and might need our assistance. Um, we, are, we are to work ourselves to take care of them. And, uh, and just now, let's, let's continue reading here in this text because... We want to make sure not to not to leave the ladies out of our discussion of work. Let's read verses nine and ten here to see how how this might affect the women and how uh, they might as well have a work. Let's see what their their work is 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 called to be. In verse nine, it says, "A widow is to be put on the list." And so here, he's obviously referring to a list that the early church had a, a list of widows' names who the church would be responsible for um, to take care of. 
It says a widow is only to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, have a rep- having a reputation of good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. And so here we have a, a good motivation for women to, pres- to, pers- to pursue excuse me, the work of godliness and the work of church assistance. Um, that is a requirement from the Apostle Paul, uh, an active uh, working out of, of a woman's godliness in the church, assisting the saints, um, really her whole life, as long as she's a Christian in the church, that's required if she's going to be taken care of and to be put on the widow's list of the church um, when she uh, is widowed and when she gets um, too old to work. Because I think as we read through this list, and, and, and Paul says a widow's only to be put on the, the church list um, for financial help if she's older than 60. And so if she's not older than 60, then obviously that widow is to either have her her family take care of her or um, she is she's um, required to work and to take care of her own needs. You see, so women, um, there also could be a time when women are also um, called to work and to um, provide for themselves. And uh, in this whole discussion, um, Paul ends uh, his discussion of the widows there in verse 16, where here I just want to read verse 16, just so we see um, what Paul's focus is on, on this whole discussion of the widows and, and, and making sure that there's an orderly um, working out of, of the taking care of widows. Look in verse 16, 1 Timothy five sixteen. it says, If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. You see, the Apostle Paul is a churchman. Now, the Apostle Paul always, always had his mind and his focus on the church of Christ and, and, and for the church's well-being. And the church's uh, money it was not to be um, uh, uh, handled without discernment and without care and without um, uh, necessity. It wasn't to be given away without necessity and without um, it being the right and just thing to do. And so in verse 16, what Paul's saying here is that um, uh, that those who can work and those who are to work should work and take care of their own needs. The church isn't to be burdened um, to take care of those who should be working themselves. You see, so the Apostle Paul was making sure that um, the church's supply goes to those who are, in this case, the wording is widows indeed. Those who truly um, need the help and have, um, in a sense, um, deserve to be helped uh, by the church. Those who have been a, a faithful part of the church or those who are going to be taken care of by the church. Um, there is one more text, one more text that I want to look at that really deals with the difficulties of glorifying God in our work. Again, another aspect of and result of the fall. 
Um, turn now to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 18 and 19. Here's another result of the fall and another obstacle that we must um, overcome in order to glorify God in our work and to work well to his honor. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 says this, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And see here, here is this uh, result, another result of the fall is that we have bosses um, who are, as, as it's translated here, unreasonable, but obviously um, uh, the fall affects our masters, our, our bosses as well. They're, they're fallen human beings, fallen and sinful human beings, and that can be a difficulty in your work, is if your boss, if your master um, was evil and sinful and, and, uh, and, uh, and not helpful and not righteous, not just, uh, that could be a huge stumbling block um, for somebody who's attempting to glorify um, God in, in their work. Um, but even despite that aspect of the fall, we are still called to glorify God in our work. We're called to overcome that. Because um, the text goes on in First Peter chapter 2, now in verse 19, it says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Unjustly, so... It finds favor with God if we are submissive to our masters with all respect, even though they um, are unreasonable. Um, Because we're not doing our work for man. Um, We're doing our work as unto the Lord, and it's it's to Him that we are to to work for and to please and to glorify. And so we see here in this text in 1 Peter 2 that it's the motivation uh, behind our work that truly matters. This is what God sees the heart. He sees the conscience. And so we need to maintain a clear conscience um, in our workplace um, because uh, God being omnipresent uh, and omniscient um, knows and sees the heart and is there when we work, whether our bosses are there or not. Um, God knows and we are working for Him, the omnipresent God. And so, um, if we bear our work in this fallen world, even under fallen bosses, if we do this gracefully, um, this finds favor. This finds favor with God. We're to have a willful submission for those in authority over us. And in this, we have the opportunity. We're given the opportunity to... We're, think about it. We're, we're given the opportunity again. I, I, I talked about earlier how... Um, this practical theology, the doctrine of work, um, is really just an application of the doctrine of God. And here, working under fallen bosses and fallen conditions and fallen businesses and around worldly people, notice we have the opportunity now uh, to reflect the nature of Christ in this, um, in that Christ um, was willing to submit himself to this fallen world and the fallen authorities of this world. And he did it all in submission to his Father, knowing that it was to the Father that his work was being offered up to. 
And so, and that's just another way we have of of living out and acting out the gospel in our lives and, and glorifying God through our work. Um, it's not simply enough, brothers and sisters, to show up to work, uh, but it's how we work it is just as important. Um, in Colossians now, in Colossians 3, verses 22 through 25 The Apostle Paul gives this instruction now. He says, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service only as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, Whatever you do, he says, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. See, our work is a matter of eternal significance. Um, here in verse 24, the Apostle Paul speaks of re- the receiving of rewards, the receiving of this inheritance, uh, the, the giving of rewards that God gives in His sovereign grace to us um, through our faithfulness. This is another uh, motivation uh, that should be present and, and is okay to have. It's not, it's not wrong to seek the, the rewards that God graciously will give us as a return for our faithfulness. Uh, but all these things are matters of the heart. These are not things um, that we're to be doing just outwardly for man as man-pleasers. Um, but we're doing our work and we're working heartily, it says, as for the Lord, uh, because that is who Christian lives, lives, Christians live their lives for, the Lord, not for, not for the benefits and for the rewards of mankind. Um, I, I chose to talk about this subject on the doctrine of work because I think that um, we all need to just rekindle uh, what was once known as the Protestant work ethic the Protestant work ethic. I read through a chapter in in Joel Beakey's book entitled Living for God's Glory. Um, I read through a title there where it was discussing how um, that even amongst the secular world, even even the worldly uh, men of of this age recognized the Calvinistic and the puritanical difference between the way the Christians worked and how the rest of the world worked. And even it was even a, a secular writer who who deemed and, and 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 gave that title the Protestant work ethic to describe that Calvinistic and Puritanical way of 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 having a a God a God glorifying motivation for for one's work. And so um, I, I just had a question here um, to ask, uh, maybe just to draw you guys out and to think about some things, but what are some ways um, that our Calvinism should affect our work um, and even our view of work? What are some ways of our of our understanding of the doctrine of God and who He is and, and uh, how would that affect our work? I, I came up with one idea, is just the, the fact that we um, know that our God is sovereign, over every situation in our lives. He's working out His providence in our lives. And so no matter where we are at, 
as far as our occupations or our jobs or whatever tasks we're given, um, these are given to us by the sovereign hand of God. And in that sense, um, we have the duty to fulfill our callings, wh- whatever that is, whether it's e- whatever, whether our job and calling is easier or nicer than, than our uh, brother and sister next to us or not. Um, our calling in our vocation is given to us by the sovereign hand of God. And so in that sense, we can trust that um, we are to, to live out our callings faithfully, knowing that we're not there by accident. Um, if it was God's will, we would be somewhere else. Um, but we are to be satisfied with God's will in our life, and we're to, to work out our salvations wherever um, God has us. Um, I also just uh, put here that that to remember the fact that God not not only calls us to salvation, but that He also calls us to our roles and our duties in our lives. He's the one who assigns our our vocations. That vocations is really kind of the historical term uh, that they use to denote uh, the calling one would have in his in his life and for his job. Um, and so, if we believe that He has given us our jobs. We must also believe that he's given us our jobs for a purpose, and not just a purpose, but for his purpose. And God's working out all things um, for the good of those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. Um, We believe that, that God is working out his purposes in our lives. So uh, put your theology to work. Uh, Believe what uh, you say you believe about God and about His sovereignty and trust Him and, and be thankful for where He has you, knowing that He has you there to fulfill His purposes and to glorify His name. And at the same time, in His sovereignty, He does it um, for our good. Uh, the Puritans were able to, to maintain their great work ethic um, because they truly saw their work as an act of uh, of glorification and of obedience to God, uh, they understood that whatever they did, they did in an attempt uh, to keep with the great commandments, to love God and to love their neighbor. Uh, the Puritans saw being productive in their work, uh, to produce things with their hands. They saw this as a way of helping their neighbors. And so in that sense, they were fulfilling the law of God to, to not only love God and to glorify Him by, by working heartily as unto the Lord, but they saw whatever they produced with their hands as something that would be beneficial um, to their neighbors. Now, the Puritans also um, took seriously the call to help others with their money. And they took seriously the call of for, of Ephesians 4.28, for instance, where Paul said, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. And for what reason? What reason is, is somebody to now labor after conversion and to perform with his own hands um, what is good, it says, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. That's why uh, we're to labor with our hands, not simply out of a selfish motivation to gain, but to share with those 
who were in need. The Puritans um, made quite a bit of bit of money because they were such an industrious and, and hardworking people. Um, but the Puritans, in the same in the same time, were known. Even the wealthy Puritans, um, they were known for being very frugal with the money that they made. And and even that, I just thought of how that falls right in line. Uh, with what 1 Timothy chapter 6 says. Again, there's much to say about our work and about what it produces and, and what we're to do with the money that we make in our work. And this is what Paul says there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul said, instruct those, who, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Paul says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good fountain for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is is life indeed. And so the Apostle Paul, understanding that if we're to follow through with his previous instructions to be industrious and to be faithful and to work hard with our hands that it will result in some uh, through the providence of God to be wealthy and to have much but Paul also at the same time understands and warns those who become rich um, to not store up uh, treasures on earth only but to be willing to share and to store up for themselves treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. So we all have different roles, different callings, different jobs to carry out. Men have their callings and roles. Women have their callings and roles. Uh, But whatever you do, whatever your calling, whatever your role, whatever your providence in this life, do it to the glory of God. Just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Because it's the Lord in His providence who assigns our roles in this life, and He will be the one to honor those who faithfully worked out their salvations in fear and in trembling. The Lord assigns the roles, and the Lord is who will judge and who will be faithful to reward. Uh, And so in that sense, a a woman can take heart. A woman who is faithful to wash dishes and to clean diapers and to keep house is just as pleasing to the Lord as the man who stands up and preaches the word of God. That woman uh, who is faithful will be just as rewarded as the one who was faithful to preach the word. The Lord assigns the the roles, and the Lord judges the heart. And many who were last will be first. Uh, This is the order, and this is the way of God. And so take heart, whatever your calling, whatever your providence in this life. Um, Just as God finds joy in His work, so we who are made in His image are to find joy in our work as well. Brothers and sisters, our work must become doxological in order to be truly pleasing to God.